really perplexing situation, we're, we're just in over our head or devastating situation in which we desperately need God's help and we cry out for wisdom. And of course, we should ask God for wisdom in, in those instances, no doubt. I would never want to discourage that. However, we should also have a dogged determination to be growing in wisdom day by day. Okay, so growing in wisdom, growing in knowledge, and so forth. Proverbs 4, verse 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. I love the New King James, I think the Old King James as well, says this, In all your getting, get insight. So, in all you're getting, in whatever you are pursuing and looking to acquire, make sure you get wisdom and insight. Our lives should be characterized as a quest to gain more wisdom for life. The Apostle Paul gives the following instruction in Ephesians 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul is concerned about a walk that is defined as not unwise, but rather as wise. And then notice the reason. Because the days are evil. And honestly, that might be some of the impetus behind this teaching series. Do we not live in evil days? It's easy just to get hot, underneath the collar about what's going on, it's harder to say, okay, I'm going to walk in wisdom because the days are evil. And that's what we want to do. We feel it, we see it, we recognize the evil, and we ought to be careful to order our steps in a wise manner. Now, careful, not timid, but careful. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when he said to his disciples, this is as he's sending them out two by two to go and preach the kingdom. And he said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Do you know what he says after that? So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus was sending them into danger, into trouble, into difficulty, into a hostile world, a world that would be hostile against them and toward them, and said, be wise. And of course, he sends us into this same world that is hostile to Christ and his message, and we are to be wise as well. So the objective is to walk in wisdom. Again, there are times we feel like we need that quick download of wisdom just right now, right? We're perplexed. We're, there's a complex situation. We need God's help, and we should seek God for wisdom when that time comes. But the trajectory of our lives, and this is going to be emphasized throughout the next several weeks, the trajectory of our lives ought to be onward and upward in a quest for wisdom and then walking in it. So these first two weeks, um, we're going to kind of be laying the foundation for what comes after. So this morning, I want to just simply answer two questions. First, what is wisdom? I want to I help give a, what I think is a working definition of what wisdom is. And then second, where, what is the reference point for wisdom? So what is wisdom? What is the reference point for wisdom? Or where do we get it? Where do we go to get it? Or where does it start? 
So what is wisdom? Well, let's look at verse 1 of our passage. Verse 1 gives us the title of the book of Proverbs. And um, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And we see right here that these are Proverbs that Solomon wrote. His name appears here at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 1. It appears in chapter 10, verse 1, another section of Proverbs, and chapter 25, verse 1. And so, though there are other contributors to Proverbs, Solomon most certainly wrote the majority of them. And this opening line calls to mind the story of Solomon and God's offer to give him whatever he asked for. You guys remember that story? It's found in 1 Kings chapter 3 if you want to read it. Uh, not now, but later. Um, it's, kind of, it's a pretty cool story. God appeared to Solomon in a dream, and he said, Solomon, ask what I shall give you. Now remember earlier I said if you asked 10 people, what would you ask God for? Amazingly, Solomon did not ask for money, and he did not ask for power. Solomon was a young man, probably about 20 years old, and he had just become king. His father had died. He was king over the kingdom and God's covenant people, and he knew he was in over his head. And so here's what he asked for. He said, give your, notice the humility, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. Now, how did God respond? God loved that answer, didn't he? God loved that answer. And God responded by saying, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So these are the wise sayings. Proverbs is full of the wise sayings of Solomon, the man of wisdom. No one, before, no one like him before, no one like him since, of course, except for Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. So we ought to ask for wisdom with our Bibles open and with our minds and hearts engaged and fully expect God to give us wisdom. I love the way James puts it in James chapter 1. If anyone lacks wisdom, to which every self-aware person would say, that's me, right? Let him ask, and God will give it. So that's what we should expect. Bibles open, minds and hearts engaged, asking God for wisdom, fully expectant he will give it to us. But I also love this opening line of Proverbs because here, hundreds of years before the incarnation, before Christ came on the scene, we see that wisdom ultimately leads to Jesus Christ. Wisdom ultimately leads to Christ, right? It says that Solomon is the son of David. Of course, we know Jesus is called the son of David. He is in the line of David, right? And Solomon is called the king of Israel. And of course, we know Christ, the true son of David, is the king of kings. And so wisdom ultimately leads us to Christ and ultimately comes from Christ. So, right here in the opening line, I think we get some insight as to what wisdom is. It's interesting. The word proverb comes from a verb that means to reign or to rule or to govern or to take dominion. 
Proverbs are wise sayings that show us how to, now follow me, okay, reign or rule or take dominion or govern. We even see that in Solomon's request. What does Solomon ask for? Give me an understanding mind that I may govern your people well. So Proverbs is a book that shows us how to take dominion, how to govern. Now before we go any further, we need to say how to govern and take dominion and rule ourselves first, right? Not everyone else. Not this doesn't show you how you can be the big boss man to everyone around you. This shows us how we first govern and rule and take dominion over ourselves, our emotions, our affections, our desires, our mouth and the words that come out of our mouth, which matters, our use of time, our work, the people we spend time with. All of this Proverbs deals with and it shows us how we can reign and rule our own lives in these areas and it really matters because these areas affect so many other areas of life. But of course, ruling ourselves, reigning ourselves, self-control we might say, then moving out from there and all the different spheres of life that God has placed you, I think of parents, right? This shows us how to govern, how to take dominion, if you will, over our children. Proverbs has a lot to say about parents dealing with their children and so forth. Fathers and husbands, how to lead your homes. We see this in the well-known chapter of The Excellent Wife, Proverbs 31. She is given wisdom in order to govern, in order to, you might say, take dominion over all of her affairs that God has given her. That's what the Proverbs give us, wisdom to govern Wisdom to reign in the affairs that God has given us to take care of. Of course, a proverb is not meant to, ta- to be taken and woodenly applied in, in an absolute way in every situation, but they do represent reality and help us in very, very practical ways. Let me give you an example. So we have a proverb that we use. You all have heard this, I have no doubt. Many hands make light work, Right? Uh, and we, we say that, in fact, um, Reed and Cindy at the lake house, when we're all out there, uh, they say, hey, dinner's done, there's 18 of us that have eaten or so, a lot of people there. Uh, we all pitch in, rather than Cindy doing all of it, which would take her an hour, it takes us all 10 minutes, right? Many hands make light work. But we can think of instances where that's not true, can't we? Right, think of dad working on the refrigerator that's not working. He's pulled the refrigerator out, and he's working on the refrigerator, and another little set of hands, little set of hands, starts reaching into the toolbox and grabbing a flathead screwdriver and poking it into the power outlet. Those hands do not help, right? More hands in that situation don't help. But Proverbs are generally true. They're principles that are generally true. Proverbs are nuggets of wisdom that show us how to reign in life. And not just life in general, not just someone else's life, but your life. You are to receive these Proverbs to help you govern your life well. The book of James 
is, uh, is sometimes called the, uh, the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Has anyone ever heard that it called that? Okay, I'm not the only one. I've, I, I've heard it several times. And it's interesting. Once you hear that and you read through James, you see it. Short little pithy statements, right, that are just nuggets of wisdom. Well, the other morning... Eden and I were driving in the car kind of early in the morning on the way to the gym to exercise, and we drove by this body of water, this pond here in Ankeny, and it was a cool morning, and there was this mist over the water. You guys know the passage in James I'm going to? James chapter 4 says, what is your life? It's a mist. You're here for a little while, and then you're gone, right? And I remembered that. In fact, Eden might remember me. I think saying that that morning. Anyways, I, I said it out loud because I was thinking about that. Well, that nugget of wisdom we are meant to take into our minds and hearts and chew on and turn over and apply to our lives because it's meant to be wisdom to help us live in a way where we govern our lives accordingly. And in that case, we are to live our lives submitted to God in all things Right? If the Lord wills, we will live <clears throat> and do this or that, right? Because we don't know how many days we have left. <clears throat> of course, wisdom is more than just a set of rules, right? We can't simply treat wisdom like an instruction manual where we turn to a certain page and see how this part goes with this part. Life is complex, of course. Life is difficult, and we find ourselves in situations where there aren't simple answers, or solutions to the difficulties and complexities we face. And not only that, but I hope it's obvious that to be wise is more than just having a big brain or being really intellectually smart. In fact, someone could be the smartest person in the room, IQ-wise, right? They could, they could explain the most complex scientific truths to us, or truths, theories, maybe I should say theories to us, the, most, the greatest mathematical equations, they know them frontward and backward, and yet the Bible says someone like that could be a fool. The fool says in his heart there is no God. So, what is wisdom? Wisdom is taking these things, this instruction on how to govern, how to reign, how to take dominion, and applying these truths to all of life. That's wisdom. Or maybe to put it a little different way, wisdom is the competency and skill in understanding how to govern our lives and affairs in order to achieve results that glorify God in every area of life. Not just the spiritual things or things we call spiritual, in every area of life. This is the wisdom from above. This is the kind of wisdom God wants to give us. This is the wisdom we can gain from the Proverbs. And we are not to view wisdom as something, now listen, we're not to view wisdom as something that we check out like we would a book from the library. We use it and then we return it. Nor are we to receive wisdom like it's something that's good for us, but we don't like it. Right? We know it's good for us like broccoli, but we don't care for it. Ah, wisdom. All right, I, need, I know I need it. No, 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 no. We are to see it as something beautiful, something glorious, something from God, a gift from God. And we are to accumulate wisdom 
as we receive it from God. Listen to what Solomon says, speaking to his son. Actually, it's in Proverbs 1, 8, and 9. It's just the two verses following our text this morning. Solomon says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. You guys hear how Solomon is talking about words of wisdom? It's, we're to wear it like it's a beautiful garland. I mean, it could be translated crown. I think for men, we'd say, let's wear a crown instead of a, a garland. But like something handsome or beautiful you'd put on your head or around your neck. That's what wisdom, we're to wear it like that. Not only that, but we are to seek wisdom and receive wisdom as the great treasure that it truly is. Listen to what Proverbs 3, verses 13 to 15 says. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. And her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. So wisdom... Okay, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the competency and the skill and understanding how to govern our lives and affairs in order to live lives that glorify God. There is great blessing in wisdom. It is beautiful and infinitely valuable. So, in all you're getting, get wisdom. Be a man or a woman, a young man or woman, even a child who is on a quest for wisdom. Now, we know ultimately, like I said before, that wisdom ultimately leads us to Christ. It ultimately leads to salvation. We would never say that someone has attained wisdom if it leads them away from Christ. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3.15, he says, you, um, you have Learn my instructions. You've learned from me and you have received the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So wisdom ultimately leads to Christ. So in all all you're getting, get wisdom. Okay, so what is the reference point of wisdom? What's the reference point? Where do we go to get it? Look at verse 7 of chapter 1 and verse 9 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So what is the reference point of wisdom? It is this, the fear of the Lord. That's where it all begins. It's the fear of the Lord. Now, this is obvious, right? The reference point of wisdom is, I want to be be really clear about this, is not you. It's not me, right? We are not filled with innate ancient wisdom that we can kind of pull up from deep within. We are creatures, and as creatures, we do not autonomously generate wisdom, It comes from God. Wisdom comes from God, specifically the fear of God. But there is a perennial temptation to look to ourselves and our own understanding 
and wisdom rather than going outside of ourselves to God. You ever talk to someone, you know what, you probably were this person and I know I was too. You're talking to someone and you're seeking to give them wise advice from God's word and they just say, yeah, I know, but I just know deep within that what I'm doing is right. We're all tempted to do that. It's a great temptation. We need to remember warnings like Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. So there's a way that seems right to a man. We've, we've been there. I just know this is right. Well, how do you know? Because I just know deep within this is right. There's a way that seems right to a man. But the end is the way of death. The reference point, the place where wisdom begins, the basic ruling principle of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This idea of the fear of the Lord is a pervasive theme in Scripture. And I think it's one that's often misunderstood. Um, but it is pervasive. And so we really need to understand what this means. I would suggest that the fear of the Lord gets to the very core of what it means to be a worshiper of God and a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't see it as much in the New Testament but it's not because it went away. We need to understand what this means. Thomas Watson, who was an English Puritan, said the following. He said, the fear of God is the sum of all true religion. The fear of God is the sum of all true religion. Now, I know this sounds strange because oftentimes we think of fear in strictly a negative way. Right? We, and, and you've probably heard this too, right? How many times in the Bible does, are we told, fear not? Right? Don't be afraid. 360, 365 times or so. Right? Fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Over and over again in the scriptures. And we think of fear as primarily or exclusively a negative thing. We live in a world that is run through with fear and anxiety. And the fear of God... Thomas Watson says is the sum of all true religion. We, we think, well, no, the fear of God is just another bad thing to be afraid of. Here's what Michael Reeves says about the fear of God that I, I found so helpful. He said, the fear of God is to be a healthy fear that eclipses and drives out all other fears. The fear of the Lord is to be a healthy fear that eclipses, like the moon would eclipse the sun, right? It, over, it, it overshadows it and drives out all other fears. In fact, I think one might say that when we truly fear God, it is the solution to all of the other things that we're anxious about and fearful of. It seems like in our society today, we are uniquely fearful people. In one sense, human beings have never been more safe, and yet anxiety and fear, perhaps, has never been more rampant. 
right? We are, we're the safest people. We live the longest, right? AC, heat. I mean, we, could just, we got it all, and, and yet people are fearful. And I might say, since we're talking about wisdom, that fear of wrong things makes us incredibly foolish. How many times have you acted foolish because you're anxious or fearful about something you had no control over? In such a world for such, and for such people, the fear of God is the solution to our fears. It's not another problem. It is the solution to our fears. So we need to know, that, we need to know what this fear is and we need to know what it's not. And then we need to know how, what this has to do with wisdom, okay? So there's a kind of fear that is most certainly sinful. Even a fear of God that is sinful and wrong. And we want to avoid that like the plague. Not only that, there is an attitude of no fear of God that we might say is at the very core of sin. And then there is a godly, holy, and happy fear of God. So let's think about each one of these, okay? First, there is a fear of God that is itself sinful, a fear that we want to avoid. It's the kind of fear where one is slavishly afraid of God. And I think of what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. You guys remember the the scene there? God comes into the garden to look for them. He, of course, he knew where they were, but he's walking through the garden. He calls out for Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? And how did Adam respond? Adam said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid from you. It's a kind of fear that hides from God. We can't hide from him, but that seeks to run from him and hide from him. It's a kind of fear that seeks to avoid God at all costs, like real, true dealing with God. We might talk about God, but really avoids being dealt with by God. It runs from him. It hides from him. It's the fear of a slave. And then I said there's also the attitude of no fear, which I think is probably more prevalent in our society today that seems to be at the very root and center of all sin. Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, he kind of gives this litany of the universal sinfulness of man, and he ends it in verse 18 by saying this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what does it mean to fear the Lord in a healthy and happy and holy way, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? What is this fear? Because, again, it's the starting place of wisdom. Well, it is fear. You don't want to get rid of that word. I've heard people try to explain fear, and it just, they remove fear. <laughs> you know? That, uh, no, it's just like, uh, it's just like respect, like, some, like respect you'd have for a, uh, an uncle or something like that. It is fear. But it's fear mixed with love. Martin Luther made the distinction between two kinds of fear of God. One that I've already described is that servile fear, that that fear of a slave, the, the kind of fear that a prisoner would have of a tormentor. 
And then Martin Luther said there is also a filial fear, the fear of a beloved son that they would have for their strong and loving and great father. It's a reverence, a deep respect and honor. It's a fear mixed with love that quite frankly drives out that servile fear. The kind of fear that anyone apart from Christ in their right mind would have of God. Our adoption into God's family through Christ and the work of the indwelling spirit actually frees us from the servile fear and produces in us that filial fear kind of fear where we really do fear our father but it's a fear mixed with love because we know him to be a gracious father listen to romans 8 15 where paul says for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father do you see the difference there the, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. It's the fear of a slave at the hands of a harsh, tormenting master. You have received, however, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you cry out, Abba, Father, or dearest Father. This fear is mixed with love. There's a, if I could put it this way, there's a fear of displeasing our Father. Shouldn't we have that? We should. There's a fear of displeasing Him. And we realize that we can and that we do. And we don't want to. We want to please Him. We want to please Him, right? In all the areas we talked about concerning wisdom, we want to please Him in how we work. We want to please him in how we handle our money. We want to please him in how we raise our children. We want to please him in how we interact with other people. We want to please him in the words that come out of our mouth. We want to please him in all of these ways because he's our father. He is to be feared, but it's a fear mixed with love. Even think about when we talk about loving God, just to kind of turn it around, look at it from a different vantage point. When we talk about loving God, well, it's not like loving, loving God isn't like loving your favorite dessert or your favorite football team or your favorite hobby or even your favorite person. God is on a whole nother level, isn't he? He is transcendent. He is the holy and eternal God. To say we love him is different than saying we love even the most precious person in our life. Our love for him is, is, it must be mixed with deep reverence, deep respect, deep honor, fear, because he's God. So fear is mixed with love, but I think fear is also mixed with a deep sense of God's goodness. Deep sense of God's goodness. I love the connection made in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. And um, this verse came to mind when I was studying for this. I was like, I love the connection he makes here. Listen to what he says. If 
The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And all of us would say, not me. Right? And then he says this, but with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness that you may be feared. God is a forgiving God that he may be feared. This is not obviously the fear of a slave, afraid of God, running from God. This is the kind of fear that causes us to draw near to God. He is so gracious and loving and forgiving of people like us. Forgiveness so that God may be feared. Forgiveness contributes to this fear. Notice it is not God and his wrath or judgment spoken of here that causes fear, but God in his gracious goodness in forgiving sinners that leads us to fear him. This is a fear, a true fear, but it is a fear, I would suggest, of displeasing or dishonoring such a good God that we know him to be in and through Jesus Christ. And Peter makes the same connection in 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to verses 17 to 19. And notice the Father and fear and redemption all in this passage. He says, If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Right? If you know God, conduct your life with fear because of the great cost that he paid to ransom you. Fear is mixed with the immense goodness of God and what it cost him to bring us into his family. It cost him the precious blood of Christ, which is more valuable than all of the gold and silver and diamonds in the world. And I think this fear is also mixed with joy and delight. And I think that just comes on the heels of, if, if, this, mix, if this fear is mixed with love, if it's mixed with the sense of God's goodness, then it, it must have joy and delight in it. Psalm 2 which is a messianic psalm clearly pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingship, his lordship, near the end has this strange phrase. I wonder if you've ever paused here and said, that's weird, how does that work? It says this, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. A good, healthy, and true Fear of the Lord is a joy. It is a good, joyful, deeply joyful thing. Listen to how Nehemiah says. I've read through the prayer of Nehemiah many times, so I love that prayer. And I, until this week, I never noticed this phrase. But Nehemiah is praying, and he speaks of God's servants this way. Those who delight to fear your name. Those who delight to fear the name, your name, the, Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is, it is a fear that's mixed with love 
It's a fear that's mixed with a sense of God's goodness. It's a fear that's mixed with joy and delight. Here's how I think this works, how the, the, the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, right, um, that this is the starting place, this is where it all begins. Here's how I think it works. The good fear of the Lord is coming to know God for who he truly is. To really know him for who he is in and through Jesus Christ. Specifically, knowing him in the blazing center of his divine revelation, which I would suggest is the cross. Right? It's at the cross that we see the glory of God in his holiness. We see his white, hot hatred of sin. We see his wrath poured out against sin. And yet we also see the great love that God has for sinners. We see the great goodness of God to atone for our sin and remove them as far as the east is from the west because he, poured, because he put them on Christ and redeem us. And when our eyes are open, I mean truly open to this, we will fear him. We will fear him. Listen, if, if we look at the cross and all we see is the love of God, we're missing a lot. Right? We see God's holiness. We see God's hatred of sin. We see God's vehement determination to put away sin in Christ. And of course, we see his love and his goodness and his power to forgive. When our eyes are open to this, we will fear him. It'll be a, a fear mixed with love, a fear mixed with in, an immense sense of God's goodness and real delight in him. This is where wisdom begins. This is the reference point of wisdom. This is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And of course, from here, we will fear dishonoring such a loving, good, delightful God. We will want to please him more and more in all of our lives. I love, we shared something from J.C. Ryle earlier, and there's this, um, it's a portion of a book, but it's where J.C. Ryle talks about being a man of one thing. Man, you could say a woman of one thing. A person, a Christian, it's all about one thing. And the one thing that we have a great zeal for is to please him. It's to please him in all things, at all times, with all of his mighty help. In the fear of the Lord, we will pursue wisdom. We'll pursue this competency, this skill that we need in order to govern our lives, to rule our lives, to rule the affairs of our lives in order to live in a way that pleases God and glorifies him. That will be the overriding desire of our lives. We will have a passion to please God in all things. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? Let's pray.